Hello Woodworms, I'm Ray Defterius, and this is the Hand Toolbook Review, the podcast for people who like woodwork and like reading about woodworking too. I've done a number of interviews over the past year, and typically these have been authors or people who could give advice on some aspect of woodworking. But today's interview you can kind of consider to be a, I don't know, superhero origin story. I've been doing DIY and power tool woodworking and tinkering around the house for many, many years. But a few years back, I was discussing it with two of my developers in the office, Andre and Werner. And what came up in that conversation was there was a presentation around programming with hand tools that they recommended that I watched. And I guess the rest they say is history. I watched the presentation. It absolutely blew my mind and opened my eyes to a whole world that I'd never imagined existed out there. Consequently, I acquired planes and hand tools, and that really began my journey on this hand tool path. When I was thinking about who I'd like to interview, just running through my head the people that I'd really like to talk to or admired, Tim Ewald came up on that list, and I thought, why not reach out and see if I could get him to join us on the show? If you're from the IT world, his name may be familiar to you, and you've certainly heard of Clojure, the programming language, if you haven't heard of him specifically. But whether you're IT or not, whether you're familiar with Clojure, the programming language or not, it is an incredible presentation on the logic, rationale, and motivation for using hand tools as opposed to power tools. I'd suggest that technical and non-technical people alike will really enjoy this presentation. It's probably a good time to stop the podcast, pause the podcast, and go and watch that presentation. If you're looking for it on YouTube, it's Programming with Hand Tools by Tim Ewald. E-W-A-L-D, and I'll leave links to it in the show notes in case you want to click through on those. Okay, so now that you're back and you've watched the presentation, let's jump into the interview with Tim Ewald now that you've got some context. Today I'm joined on the show by Tim Ewald, and it's a bit of a departure from interviewing authors, but if I go back a few years ago, there was a very, very influential presentation in my life, which was about programming with hand tools. And so it really feels for me like I've come full circle today by being able to go back to the person who gave that presentation and just spend some time asking him about that. So Tim, I think maybe just starting at the beginning, and how did you get into woodworking? So uh, when I was a kid growing up, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and in particular with my grandfather, who was a mechanical engineer by training and um, just did a lot of work on their home and their property. Um, He had a shop at the house. So I remember spending just loads of time watching him work, um, seeing the things that he did. I did some work on my parents' house as I was growing up, but really minor stuff. And then when I went to college originally, it was to study architecture, as in buildings, not software architecture. And uh, one of the courses that was required for a first-year architecture student was a design studio. And one of the pieces of that design studio was to design and build within the constraints of a material. So we had access to a fully set up workshop with a a big mix of uh, power tools and hand tools. And that was really the first exposure I got to more serious woodworking. And then I ended up moving out of the architecture program into computer science and this sort of fell by the wayside till for, for many years. I mean, I always kind of had an interest, but I didn't have the funds or the space to actually start woodworking. So I, it, I don't know, 
15, 20 years passed. We moved into a new house that needed a kitchen island. And uh, we decided that to save funds, we would purchase pre-made cabinets, but then I would assemble them into the island. So that kind of kicked me off. Like I built the island out of those parts and did a bunch of other work on the cabinetry in the kitchen. And it was just at sort of the right moment in life. My child was very young, like one or two years old. I needed a hobby. Uh, like I, I was at home a lot more. I wasn't traveling as much for work. I needed a hobby. And uh, that experience of doing that build really kind of set me off on this path. And as I started, I did what I think a lot of people do. I was like, oh, I'm going to get into woodworking. And I remembered my grandfather's shop and his table saw, of course. And uh, I ended up buying a table saw from a friend of mine who wanted to upgrade his. And I got a router and all of the you know, intro tools, like the, the kind of uh, general sense is like, this is what you do. And I didn't really like those tools very much. The table saw in particular, you know, it was a job site saw. It was just kind of sketchy doing certain things with it. And I also was confronting, uh, I didn't really have the space for a joiner and a planer. And I was really up in the air about whether I actually wanted them. I remember using them in that wood shop in college and, you know, with not a lot of training or what have you, they were just, they're a little bit daunting to me. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I started looking at into hand plane as a mechanism that was, um, you know, cheaper to acquire and way less space intensive and safer. And that kind of set me down the path towards hand tools. A friend of mine gave me the Chris uh, Schwartz video about hand plane essentials. Not that long after that, I picked up a copy of uh, The Joiner and the Cabinet Maker. And, you know, more than anything else, that book and the description of, uh, of Chris doing the, the projects that are described in the book, just really like I fell in down the rabbit hole for sure. It's, a, it's very interesting that you talk about how evocative those books are, because I think that they really are. I mean, you can certainly, if, you, if you've read any of the anarchist books, I guess, or Joiner and Cabinet Maker there, you get a real sense for a different way of doing things. And I'm still constantly amazed at how many people really don't have any knowledge of hand tools at all. You know, And I probably fell into that uh, bucket. When I was learning, it was also kind of from home DIY, and then I got a router, I tried to make an arcade machine, made a second arcade machine for a friend that turned out a lot better. But it was pure happenstance then that I was talking to guys in the office, and they put me onto your presentation, and I read this, and it was just like a different world. I was going through the presentation again in preparation for the interview, and you know, it's just amazing to me, you know, stuff like you mentioned Chris in the book there and James Krenov. And, you know, these were people that I just had no knowledge of at all. And I, I didn't have any knowledge of this way of doing woodworking. So it's lucky that you had a grandfather or someone who would have given you a little bit of that experience, because I think there's many people out there that just haven't had that through their family life and aren't aware of this way of doing things. It was interesting the the same friend that I bought you know, the table saw from, as I talked to him, it was someone I worked with. And, and as we talked day to day, and I kind of was telling him about, I'm not sure sort of what steps to take, what direction to go. I, I think it was actually, he was the first person who said just kind of in passing, well, you know, there are people who, who do everything by hand, or like they maybe just have a bandsaw and everything else they do by hand. Just some other sort of context for me that shaped this thinking about the choice that I made was honestly, and I, I talk about this some in the presentation, was about safety. I have a very good friend who several years before I started woodworking, he put the palm of his hand into his table saw blade. And, you know, thankfully he he didn't lose any fingers or, or his thumb. And, you know, it was very mild as these things go. But 
you know, uh, it's a frightening thing nonetheless. I think the other thing for me, uh, so my child, when, when they were one, had elevated lead levels from lead dust from paint in an old home. And that was all dealt with like they're fine, but it made me very conscious of the environmental risk uh, related to dust, right? Uh, obviously, we know woodworking dust is a big uh, potential concern. And a lot of the machine approaches to work more or less vaporize wood, right? A router bit or a power sander. You need, uh, in my opinion, you need a lot of um, pretty significant equipment to deal with that safely. Um, and those, both those uh, thoughts about safety were on my mind in, in heading down this path. I just find hand tool woodworking to be very peaceful, you know, very safe and just very calming, right? I, I spend all day at a computer looking at a screen and thinking about technology. And uh, it's really nice to have a shop that I can step into and it kind of takes me out of the modern world. We're going to circle back to that because I think that's a you know a very important and, and interesting observation there. But I guess also you know when you're talking about young kids, um, I think one of the things that also pushed me in this direction was I wanted my kids to be able to grow up where they could go into the workshop when I was at work. Um, you know, so I guess just saying school's finished, come home instead of going onto a smartphone or an iPad or something like that or sitting in front of the television. I remember when I was growing up, I could go into the um, garage, open up my grandfather's toolbox and my father's toolbox, and then basically just hammer nails into wood and, and saw things. I don't remember creating anything. I'm a little bit embarrassed when you know you see Chris's workbench from when he was seven or whatever. I, <laughs> I certainly wasn't doing that. But I wanted that for my children. And you know, obviously, if you've got any form of power tool inside of the workshop, then leaving a seven-year-old the keys to the workshop makes no sense. But you know, my boys now are eight and ten, and the eldest one's got the code to the to the workshop. And sometimes after school now, he'll go in there and you know, generally making crossbows, arrows, swords, um, shields, you know, any form of weapon you can imagine. Um, but doing it with chisels and saws and things that, you know, while they may hurt him, you know, we're not going to be rushing off to a hospital trying to reattach an arm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have spent time in the shop together building our, a range of um, projects. And it, it started exactly that way with like, is there scrap wood that I can saw up? And then into could we make a sword? Could we make a spear? <laughs> and then into, here's a school project I need to do. You know, I need to build a model of, of this or of that. And, you know, can we work in the shop to do that? Um, so yeah, that's, that's a great, a great thing for sure. One of the things that I was also conscious of in going down this path is I think it's important to teach our children that, you know, we can. Uh, we don't have to buy everything. Right? We can make the things that we want, and if we make them, we can make exactly the things we want. Uh, we can also repair things, and I think those are things that for a lot of kids today, like we're, we live in such a production, consumption, disposable sort of society. You know, I really wanted to to teach that lesson. I think it's very important, you know, and I, I certainly won't claim to be you know, good at that or I guess atypical, you know, we, we're certainly not living a, a minimalist, you know, kind of lifestyle or, you know, you know, just making everything ourselves. But I think that every time you teach a seven-year-old how to wire a plug or you show them that, okay, the door's not fitting and we're going to plane the side of it so that it won't stick in the summer months or whatever, I think you're laying a framework that they may return to later on. You know, most of my 20s and beginning of my 30s, I always joke, I wouldn't change a light bulb in my house. I'd call someone out to do it. I was uh, you know, in a highly paid job and we were working long hours and I, I really just didn't do anything. But I think later on, you know, when I sort of circled back to wanting to do the stuff myself, 
it was always in my head that it was possible. And I'm sure that that example comes from, you know, what you see with, with your folks. You know, my dad used to do some wiring at home. He was a qualified electrician. Um, but, you know, he'd go and cut a piece of wood and use it to shore something up in the garden if we had to. And I think those examples, regardless of when they're used by a child, I think they'll revisit that at some point in their life and just go, yeah, I remember when me and dad used to do X and they yeah. can use that as an example. Definitely. This was sort of coming full circle for me. There was a, a moment, I don't know, so, uh, six months ago where you know they're in a, a new room now as a teenager and we have bifold closet doors that have been here since we've lived in this house and they are always open. So they wanted to take them down. And the first I knew about it was a request for, you know, could you come look at something? And it was great. You know, I, I walked into the room and one of the doors was already down and on the floor. <laughs> and the great thing about it was I had never done anything with them and I didn't actually know how to take them down. So, you know, to have uh, my child explaining hey, this is what I did to remove it. And this is what I need your help with. Can you just loosen the screw here? Because the screw's a, a little bit worn down and it's tough to turn. I was like, yeah, this is exactly you know the thing that I had hoped to teach, right? Here's the thing you want to change. It involves tools. You don't really know how to do it, but you're happy to dive in and give it a go. I think that's a way better example than my current best one because Ben came to me the other day and he said, Dad, you remember that crossbow we made, you know, with the, you know, stretchy elastic on it? He said, that stretchy elastic wasn't cutting it. So I've upgraded it and he sort of cable tied all these things together and made it into sort of a compound effect. And it's now punching a dowel, you know, probably an inch into some of the softer trees in the garden. <laughs> and I was like, Ben, you know, you know, you'll kill your brother if you shoot him with that. <laughs> yeah, so that's a thing to be careful with. <laughs> we had to have a bit of a discussion about that only gets used in a shooting range. And I say that in inverted commas, it's a cardboard box, you know, <laughs> lying lying down one of the walls. But I said, if you're not shooting at targets in the shooting range, you, you're not using that. So, you know, you certainly had that ability. I just wish the, the application had been a little bit different. But Tim, just going right back, you, you said you'd started with architecture, I mean, and then to go from architecture to computer science, that's quite a big change. What prompted that? Was there a reason for that? Yeah, I mean, well, so two things. I think it's maybe not as big a change as, as one might think, and I'll come back to that in a second. But yeah, architecture really was the only thing that I had ever wanted to do since I was very young. You know, five, six years old, I wanted to make buildings. I remember going to see a performance of some sort at a big arena, and my mother not complaining, but just observing that I spent the entire time looking at the supports of the structure and the catwalks and the spotlights and the ceiling, basically, instead of you know what we were there to see. But so I went off to school, and I don't know if this is true, obviously, worldwide, but at a lot of schools in the United States, architecture is a, it's a very strange educational experience. It's almost like a boot camp. It's extremely competitive at the top tier schools. And so there was, a, there was a lot of pressure around that, which was fine. But the statistic, I think, is that um, you know, something like 5% of licensed architects get to design their own buildings. And the rest design you know cabinets or <laughs> or whatever uh, finished materials for other people's buildings and so I had this moment of looking around at the you know the people I was in this program with and making the call that uh, I didn't think I would make that cut and so it became less interesting to me right I really wanted to be able to do my own thing and so I don't know I just uh, decided that I wasn't going to be able to achieve what I hoped to achieve and so I switched to computer science which you know I had a I had a little bit of background in programming. The thing that I think is interesting cuz I think on the surface it appears to be very different, but I think that the things that I learned in the time that I was studying architecture about design 
about the design process and balancing tensions between function and form and you know features versus qualities, all those things are really relevant in software architecture. And I think in many ways, it gave me a perspective on how to solve problems, how to create solutions to problems that really gave me a leg up in the software space. There's definitely some elements of that that are shared, but also, you know, coming from a programming and a general IT background myself, I do find that programming has that that element of creation about it, that I guess I can see the parallel between wanting to design a building and, and have a building built to your design and seeing that and seeing it realized and writing a program and then seeing it, you know, execute in a way that is in line with what you'd envisaged. I, I can certainly see the parallels there. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like with woodworking, I kind of, in a way, it's sort of coming back in a circle, right? Because while I have been able to work on systems that have been challenging to design and build, and some of which have been, you know, turned out to be quite successful. I mean, I worked on a system, I was really there just working on the initial design. It was a recreation of an existing thing or the next generation of it. And I worked on it for several years. Um, I ended up leaving, but the team that was there carried it forward. And it ended up you know, being a system used by millions of people for about 15 years, which is a really good run in the software space these days. But you know, one of the things that happened as I got older, I thought about you know, sort of what, what are you going to leave in the world? What is your legacy, right? And I had, okay, I have a child. That's the most important part of my legacy. But and then, you know, what, what about the things you've made? Well, I think the reality in software is that very few of the things we make are going to be around or, or relevant or even remembered in the scope of our lifetime. And so in some ways, I turn to furniture to, to say, you know, I want to make something that like 50 or 100 years from now, someone's like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, we got this from, from, you know, our great uncle. <laughs> In my own upbringing, there's artifacts like that, right? There's things that have been passed down. There's not a lot of them, but I don't know. It's just kind of neat. And uh, I think that if when my time here is done, people could look back and say, well, I raised someone well, and I left some well-built pieces of furniture to the people I cared about. Like That's a pretty good thing to have as your legacy. It's interesting. One of the interviews I've done in the last couple of weeks was speaking to Matt Bickford, who's quite famous, obviously, for the molding planes and uh, the books that he's written on that. And he was a trader, you know, working on a derivatives desk before he got into that, you know. And I guess that if you judge life on a purely financial point of view, you know, working for a big bank, being a trader is, you know, is very successful. But I'd certainly suggest that what he's doing now is way more fulfilling. And like you say, there's a good chance in 150 years, someone's going to pick up a Matt Bickford plane and say, you know, this was something that was made at this time by this person and look at the quality of it. And I think there's something very special about that. And, you know, we're talking in the context of woodworking, but I guess writing a book, you know, any form of crafting or creation that will outlive you is certainly a special part of a legacy. Yeah. I mean, someday there's going to be someone who offers up for sale you know, some tool dealer is going to offer up for sale a complete half set of Matt Bickford planes with the original owner's mark on them, always together, you know, that came out of somebody's grandfather's tool chest. And it'll be just like, you know, the ones that you can pick up from 18th century planes from Britain or what have you, right? And that'll be a great thing. I think it will. And talking about tools, I saw the presentation, you know, I'm going to keep mentioning that, I guess. But at that point, it looked very much like your shop was almost a, a Veritas catalog. Um, you know, there was, there was a real selection of those tools in the, in the presentation. 
Could you tell us a little bit about your shop and your tools, what you're using today? Do you have a favorite tool? What's your next tool? Um, any Anything along those lines? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny. So I have gone back and forth. Like I know there are a lot of people in hand tool work who really favor using older tools. There's certainly cost savings to be had there for sure. And, you know, a lot of people really enjoy the process of fettling tools to get them back into usable shape. I've done that to some extent, but in general, my approach is if I can find a modern tool that is well-made and does the job well, as well, or sometimes better than a vintage tool, I tend to go that way if the price is reasonable. There are certain things that I prefer to buy vintage. So two good examples of that, well, three good examples. I mean, bit braces and hand drills, um, and also most importantly, hand saws. I think the vintage stuff in my experience is uh, really good. Certainly, it does what I need to do. So like my most used hand saws are all number seven distance in a variety of lengths. I really love the handles on them and they're not too hard to find at reasonable prices. And uh, at one point along the way, I taught myself to sharpen them. So that's really effective. For planes, yeah, I have... <laughs> quite a few Veritas joinery planes in particular. I mean, I think their joinery planes are just absolutely top-notch, and I've been very happy with them. Like many people, I actually started with bevel-up planes. I have some of the Veritas bevel-up planes, but I've since switched to keen cutters. I mean, they were manufactured by Stanley in the early bedrock style, but they're not as well-known as the bedrocks, so their prices tend to be lower. Um, and I actually bought several from a gentleman on a site who um, regrinds the soles flat and square. Beyond that, you know, I have some Veritas chisels, also some Narex chisels. One thing that I sort of spoiled myself on at the start is I was one of the very early customers of Badaxe uh, Toolworks and their saws. Their prices have gone up quite a bit since I bought my joinery saws from Mark. In terms of a favorite tool, it's really hard to say. I got a Veritas combination plane. Um, it's probably one of my most recent tool acquisitions, and it's a great piece of engineering. The main thing I bought it for was to plane dados to supplant. I had a couple um, vintage wooden dado planes, and the Veritas combination plane works a treat for that. Another favorite tool, it might sound sort of strange, is just I have a little distant number seven crosscut saw, 16 inch that I use for trimming stuff to length at the bench. And I especially use it for um, trimming panels after glue up for cross-cutting panels. And there's something about that saw. It's just sweet. I bought it from Ed Lebetkin, who's got a tool store down on the second floor above Roy Underhill's Woodwright shop. And I've been down to the store a couple times. And I actually tried it out there and didn't buy it. And then I went home and was kicking myself because it just, it cut so sweet. I shot him an email and said, how was just fair? Could you package that up and send it to me, please? No, that's a great story. Look, it's better than the reverse of that, where you buy something and take it home and then you, you wonder why you bought it. So not buying something that's fantastic is probably better than buying something that isn't. I think I have very few tools. I'm sure I have some, but I have relatively few tools where I was like, boy, this was just a mistake. I wouldn't have bought everything that I have if I had known at the start what set of tools I really end up using. But I think that's just a lesson you have to learn. And no matter how many times someone on a forum or mailing list says, you really should pay attention to the advice of the people who have this experience when they tell you what you should get. I think you have to kind of find your way. I think it's also hard. I went through a I don't know, I, I at best I can just call it a collector's phase where I try to get every number in a you know, just say the Stanley numbering system, I try to get from everything from a three to an eight and everything in between. And, you know, these were all vintage. And it was really just this 
process of acquiring things. But I've made a deal with myself that if you know if there's dust on the tool at the end of the year and I haven't used it, then I don't want to be precious about them, get rid of them, and, and rather just keep more limited number of tools that I use. And I'm I'm not perfect on it, but you can generally get what you or close to what you paid for a tool. And I'd much rather just have you know less clutter and tools that I'm using you know all day every day rather than this whole selection just sitting there. And I, then I just have this guilt about not sharpening them and keeping them up to good neck. So yeah. It's, get rid of a few and you learn. It's funny you say that about sharpening. I think that um, I was talking to a group of kids who are shocked to learn that I saved money for a budget for tools that you know I wasn't spending. And it was sort of shocking to them that I wasn't just going and buying tools. And you know, a big part of the reason is any tool that you acquire, you have to find a place to keep it and really learn how to use it and learn how to keep it tuned up and ready to go. And so at this point, I definitely went through a phase where I didn't have all the tools that I needed to make my day-to-day work very streamlined, but I sort of distinctly remember the... Well, I don't remember which project it was, but I remember a project where I just felt like, oh, this is the first time I wasn't making do with something and thinking, oh, if only I had one of these, that would make this so much easier. I was like, oh, I finally have this tool set that now I could just do the work that I want to do. And so... At this point, I actually don't acquire tools very often, and they would tend to be something specific to a task, right? Or like some area that I decide I want to get more involved in. So it's a little bit of like moving into a new space. So an example of that would be like I do a little bit of turning, mostly spindle work for furniture. So I actually don't have any turning tools for vessels, right? And a a friend of mine has been doing a lot of bowl work. And so I've thought about just playing around a little bit there. And so that would be a place I'd have to go acquire some things. But I try to avoid that. Every now and then I fall for something I see somewhere where I'm like, I already have one of those, but that looks like, that looks, (laughs) I don't know, so appealing, right? (laughs) Maybe it's time to try out this alternative chisel or this alternative mallet or whatever, but I try to avoid those things. Uh, Fair enough. I mean, even with the chisels, I mean, you mentioned Narex's earlier and I've got their mortise chisels, which I really enjoyed. But, you know, I was looking at those other day and going, Ray, you know, why did you buy five? I know they look good on the shelf there because you've got that little bit of a selection. But really, if the apocalypse was coming tomorrow, I could probably narrow that down by one or two more chisels there and not feel the difference. So, yeah. I guess we've all had that moment where it's, you know, one more of those. And you mentioned bad axe saws. So I've got a few bad axe saws and I really thought I'd filled in the the quiver. And then Bob Rosieski posted on Instagram that he was getting rid of one of his saws, you know, that was slightly soiled and he wanted $200 for it. And I was, I'm so glad I read this first. One of the benefits of being in South Africa, I think I was just awake before everyone else and I could grab that saw and it's really, it's a duplicate. <laughs> I've got no other explanation for it other than I just wanted one of Bob's saws in my right. in my tool room. So yeah. When he was moving shop several years ago now, he was selling off a bunch of his tools and I bought his uh, in-canal and out-canal uh, bench gouges from him. I think we might have, sorry, you might have pipped me on those ones. I got a brace when he had some of those up and then when I asked him about the gouges, he said they'd already been sold. So so now I know who the, yeah, that was <laughs> now I know who the culprit was. <laughs> it's uh, it's interesting that you talk about uh, using that Veritas combination plan for dados because you know that's something I've been struggling with at the moment. I've been trying to use um, vintage dado planes, and I, I I don't know probably as an itinerant tinkerer and um, you know inventor, whatever you want to call it, I built my own one with some wheel gauges on the side, and I'm now trying a second second round of that because I, I really found that. You know, hollow and rounds are fantastic. Vintage plow planes are fantastic. But in terms of cutting dados, I've, I've really struggled with the vintage tools. I haven't found anything there that does that job well. Yeah, I have, 
I either have two or three of them. And of the ones that I have, one of them works quite well, although it's pretty hard on the palm of your hand. The other two are uh, rougher. Um, so I had experimented with like a Stanley 39, which I could never get to work very well, mostly because there's not a comfortable way to put pressure on the front. So yeah, the Veritas plane is uh, is really good for that. And Tim, uh, you know, just in terms of uh, work that you do in your shop, is it something that you do, you know, during weekdays, weekends, a little bit of both? How much time are you typically putting into uh, your woodworking in a in a week? Well, it's a it's a hard question to answer this year. I had a bunch of health issues. Um, I had surgery mid year that sort of took me out of doing anything for several months, and I also had issues with my shoulder, which are related to a bad car accident I was in as a teenager. And uh, so I, I've sort of lost track. I mean, I my recollection. I'm getting back into the swing of it now. And where I used to be was, uh, depending on what was going on at home in the evenings, I would get like one or maybe two evenings in the shop during the week. And then I would try to get a good, you know, eight hours in the shop over the weekend spread over, over two days. I'm getting back to the point where I can do that. So it's probably, I don't know, between 10 and 12 hours a week is what I try to get in. It must have been quite frustrating if you if you had to put that aside, you know, especially during this year. I mean, I certainly found that one of the benefits of COVID was that when we were forced to stay at home, I could take my commute time and turn that into shop time. So yeah, this was a terrible yeah. year to be dealing with surgery. Absolutely. No, it was very frustrating too. I had sort of two months where I just wasn't supposed to lift anything under 10 pounds or over 10 pounds rather. And and so yeah, it was, it was uh, difficult, but it's all in the past at this point. So full steam ahead. You mentioned turning, and is there a specific project you've got in mind at the moment? Is there something you're planning on doing before the end of the year? What's on your bench, as it were? Well, I'm finishing up kind of stickly-inspired desk that was a request from my mother to build. So that's nearly done. My next project after that, I have a couple small things for family, but my next significant project is actually going to really sort of take me out of the furniture comfort zone. A dear friend of mine, her family bought a uh, post and beam house, and the daughter wants a loft, a sleeping loft added. There's, okay. a, there's a kind of, there's a bump out in their room with like a flat surface and they want to extend it. So I'm actually going to be doing some sort of timber framing work to build that out uh, for them. I have a nephew who's a contractor and has done a fair amount of timber framing. And it's really fascinating to me, right? Because it's, in a way, it's very much like hand tool woodworking writ large, right? Uh, if you know how to make mortise and tenons, now you just make them a lot bigger. So I'll be doing that. The next furniture piece I'm thinking of in related to turning, like one of the things I've been trying to do in my work for years now is just incorporate more and more curves, right? Just because it, it's a way to raise the bar. Like when I started, the way that I approached learning to work with hand tools was to embrace the traditional construction techniques. And basically, there's three joints, right? There's mortise and tenon, there's dovetails, and there's groove joints, either dados or rabbits. And so I basically said, whatever I build, I'm just going to use these joints until I feel, I won't say that I've mastered them, but until I feel so comfortable with them that they don't impede my progress, right? Like I think all of us, I hope all of us, I hope it's not just me, like have a moment of like, I've got this tricky thing to do. I'm I'm about to attempt. I've never done it before. And you can have this sort of trepidation and like it'll sit for a while in the shop and you keep thinking, I really should just go do it. And kind of invariably, when I finally do go do it, I, I think, oh, that wasn't that bad. Like, what, <laughs> what was I so worried about? But I wanted to get to the point where none of the basic joinery, none of it daunted me, right? I'd just be like, okay, here, you know, I got to cut a small sliding dovetail now. Okay, I'll do it. But then I, there was a piece I finished several years ago where I was like, okay, that was the, I feel like I hit that, that goal, right? 
And so, you know, what's sort of the next thing? What do you, what do you add? And uh, curves, right? Bring in curves and angles. Um, they make things obviously more, more complicated. So come back around to the question of what's the project. I'm planning to build a small sort of round side table. It'll either be a shaker candle stand style project. Um, a friend of mine really loves shaker work and um, doesn't do a lot of furniture work or hand tool work. And so I've invited him to like, maybe we would build a pair of them together. I also have a piece in our home that I just look at as it's a small round table with a drawer. It's got a turned pedestal and then curved legs. And I think it would be interesting to try to not replicate it exactly, but approximate it, right? It would force me to do a whole bunch of curved uh, joinery and work that would be a good step in you know my learning process. That sounds pretty interesting. And I mean, certainly resonates in terms of that progress. You know, I certainly am not doing a lot of curved elements, but, you know, just talking around the joinery, you've got that joint that you, I don't know, put up on a pedestal or a little bit scared of, and then you do it. And as long as you just throw a bit of repetition at it, you know, eventually it becomes kind of normal. Last December, I was doing a dovetail a day, you know, that typical kind of thing over Christmas. I said, look, I've got to nail dovetails. And now kind of 10 months down the line, by having done a lot of them, I just think of it, okay, well, that's a joint that you use in this circumstance. I think one of the nice things about the hobby is, is that there's always that next little thing. You know, once you've nailed curves, you know, then you're going to go and see some piece of inlay and say, gee, I wonder if I can do that or marquetry or I want to get back into bowl turning. You know, I've made a couple of spindles, but I want to make some stuff for the kitchen. So I, there's, there's so many different opportunities for you to find a new little rabbit hole to jump into. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that's interesting to me about working by hand is that all of the different tools and techniques kind of feed into each other. And it's a very small tool set that's used to do all these things. And so I think it may not be as fast, obviously, as working uh, with power tools, but I think I'm not in the production business, right? For me, it's about creativity more than productivity. And if I can have a small set of tools that I can use to do all of these things and move around sort of in the woodworking sphere uh, and experiment and just sort of go where my interests take me or where, you know, requests from family members for, for things take me, you know, it's great. And Tim, going back to 2014, you know, you gave the presentation, you know, closure programming with hand tools. And I've mentioned it's a presentation that, you know, really for me was a, you know, seminal moment in my woodworking. But often when I talk to programmers, this comes up. It's certainly something that's lived on, I think, long past, you know, the date of the presentation. And a lot of people mention it as being, you know, quite meaningful to them. And I know you've said it's a, you know, it was obviously, it was a programming presentation, but it's been, I think, very influential in the hand tool arena, particularly amongst IT professionals. So could you just tell us a little bit about how you came up with the idea and drawing the parallels and, you know, what was the inspiration for that talk? So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the original... The way that I ended up there, so the company that I worked at at the time, uh, Cognitect, um, had an internal event where we would all get together and spend a few days on various things. And one of the things we did was internal sort of technical talks. And I did a talk along similar lines that was, it was really about my workbench. And the point it was trying to make, like in software, I think one of the challenges is, you know, people spend a lot of time focusing on the features of software and not the qualities by which I mean, you know, people care about uh, the feature, I can press this button and the software does this. But the qualities are things like, is it reliable? Right? Does it fail? Not failing is not a feature, (laughs) but it is a quality that you want. 
And I think a lot of times when engineering teams are planning their work, a lot of it is focused on features and it's, it's harder to get teams to think about ensuring the qualities. And I think there's a good parallel here in woodworking. So if you think about if you're making a piece of furniture for somebody, so I'm making this desk for my mother, she wants a cabinet as a piece of it and some drawers. Those are the things that she'll ask for as features, but you know, she also wants it to be sturdy enough, not sag, not have any issues with moisture and expansion and contraction. Um, those are qualities, right? And and it's incumbent on us as woodworkers to like we'll take care of those other things, the, the quality pieces and and get the features, right? But it's up to us really to design a thing that provides both. And so uh, I did this presentation and I used my workbench as an example because workbenches, you know, there's a common set of qualities we want them to have. They have to be sturdy and robust and not rack, but there's lots of ways to build them, right? I mean, I have a Nicholson style bench. Other people build Rubos or, you know, any number of other styles. And so it was uh, this talk I did to this small group internally, and a couple of the people there were, you know, the organizers of the conference. And one of them, Rich Hickey, the author of Closure, was like, you know, the point that I was making about, hey, I built this thing using just this small set of tools. It really resonated with him about the language that he had created. And so I got the opportunity to do the keynote at the conference, and I sort of wanted to build on, you know, that analogy. It, was pretty effective, although it was funny. Like normally if someone asks you to do a conference talk, they have a topic in mind. And you know, the request to me was, could you do a conference talk and like expand on this analogy? And so really the thing that it grew into for the talk was that I see a parallel, you know, I mentioned a few minutes ago, creativity and productivity. And, you know, as with so many endeavors, certainly business endeavors, people are interested in productivity and there's a big push in programming towards tools and technologies to make programmers more productive. But in that world too, there, you can look at it a different way and say, you know, programming is very much a creative activity. And you can build a team where you said, we gave people a set of tools that all do the same thing. And we just have lots of people kind of cranking out the same stuff over and over again, right? So it's about being really productive. In my experience, if you're really trying to do something new, which if you're in a startup, which at the time, those were the businesses I was working in, you want people to be productive, but it's not really about productivity. Like you're not trying to mass produce things. You're trying to find your way about what it is, what it is you're going to make. And really the key at the end of that talk is really about saying, you know, we're like the pattern makers, right? There's this mistake, I think, in the software space that people think software is like manufacturing, right? A lot of people reference the Kanban process that Toyota used to really improve quality in its products and say, like, this is how we should be working, you know, in this style. But it's really important to remember that Kanban was a manufacturing technique. It was about building things, the shape of which was already known. But a lot of times in software, we're defining the shape as we go. It's not like we know exactly what we're making. Now we just have to go make it efficiently, right? A lot of times it's, we're learning the right thing to make as we're building it out. And so I was sort of trying to make that observation and issue a little bit of a warning because this gets very specific to the exact context. But at the time, a lot of people had come to Clojure and were bringing approaches and tools that they had used with other programming languages and were kind of saying, this is what we should do here. Like, we should do it like this. But there were contextual differences where, you know, it just didn't make sense, right? I mean, a whole, the whole purpose of that language 
And again, this is to me the connection to hand tools. It's like, hey, I don't need all of this equipment. I don't need all these technologies and machines. I need a basic set of tools that I can go do lots of different things with. I guess there's always this pressure on developers. You know, we've got a, a shop of developers and, you know, if it's not the business guys demanding new features, it's the customers, you know, who've got a defect that needs fixing. And yet when guys and girls have, have the space to really think about what they're doing and to do a good job of that, I mean, that quality lives forever, you know, and I, and I like the pattern maker analogy because a pattern maker wasn't being asked to throw out they're not being asked to throw out 15 of those quickly and being measured on how long it takes to make each one of them. What they're really doing is making something you know that is as close to perfect as they can do. And I think particularly in software, what do we always say? There's, there's never enough time to do it right the first time, but you can always redo it five times. I think if we have that space to be able to really think about it, use the right tools for the job, that you, know, you get a better result. Yeah, Absolutely. I think one of the things that I get out of, you know, stopping work on software for a day and and working in the shop is I mean, it's very similar in some senses, right? It's both are really about problem solving. You know, I have a thing I need to build, how do I want to build it? That presents a design problem for which I have to come up with a design and an and an approach. And I think that one of the things that you see in a lot of modern software development is a sort of breakneck pace, right? We need to get this done right away. What are you going to have done this week? Working by hand and in wood, it just sort of slows things down and it gives you more time to think. But I think that the skills you learn doing that, you can bring back to to the software world. One of the things I think you learn is I have to look at things more holistically. Like I was, as I've been working on this desk project, it's the largest thing I've made in terms of number of pieces. I, I've lost track, but I think it has 150 parts. When we work by hand and we cut a joint and we fit those particular pieces together, you have to remember in the back of your mind, like I could cut and fit every one of these joints and create a set of parts that it's impossible to assemble. <laughs> yeah. Right? And so you have to always be like, but wait, you know, this might be the right way to do this part, but how does this whole thing go together? What's going to happen when I get to glue up? Am I going to do it in stages? There's a lot of stuff to bear in mind there. And I think that it makes you think in the small, like, what am I trying to do at this exact part and this exact joint, but also always in the context of the large. And I think that's a thing that can be helpful to people in working in software right? It's easy to get focused on, I'm doing this task, but like, what are the implications for the larger thing that I'm trying to create? I think I'm going to pause on uh, talking about glue apps because, you know, I've heard it said that, you know, you halve your IQ during a, a glue app, but I, I feel like I, it's, you know, for me, it's probably a factor of 10. I do the dumbest things with, uh, you know, when, when there's a short open time. But one of the things that Nancy Hiller's book's got in it that I love is she, you know, she quotes someone she worked with who just said it's all problems, you know, and I definitely think that there is a little bit of appeal to IT professionals because it's tactile, so it's different. It's not, you know, sitting at a screen, but you really have to apply your brain to a lot of situations. And as you work through the project, some things go wrong and then you have to work out a solution and fix them. And I mean, there's a definite parallel there to working with IT systems, I think. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I mean, I certainly at various times talking to engineers, if you say, what is your job? Often people will say to write code. And I disagree, right? Our job is to solve problems. And some of that requires writing code, but some of it requires thinking about what we're going to write and how we're going to deploy it and you know all sorts of other things. But it's easy and I think very common to believe that 
as a programmer, my job is to write code, but it would be the equivalent of saying as a woodworker, my job is to use a saw. I mean, not really. Like that's just a tool that gets you to your destination. I think also, you know, it sounds to me, even though architecture was a while back, but you've definitely, you've got that bigger picture of things. And I was wondering, you know, have, have you read that book by Walker and Tolpin, uh, By Hand and Eye, where, you know, they talk about taking the architectural elements and bringing that back into furniture design? Is that something you've read? Yeah, I absolutely uh, have. I love that book. So the last couple pieces I've designed uh, recently, you know, followed that kind of model of proportional design. And I think in terms of guiding your eye, as they say, right, towards making something that's pleasing, there's definitely something to it. Like, I, I think that in the absence of any other reason, like you may be building a thing that has to fit in a certain spot and has to hold certain things that are of known sizes, right? So you may not always be able to do it. But in the absence of that, Taking the approach that, you know, I'm going to use proportion and symmetry or in some cases asymmetry, you know, kind of as they describe, I think is a very powerful tool. And certainly moving away from exact measurements so that, you know, you can have a design that you could scale up or down depending on, you know, the exact space it needs to fit in is a very powerful tool for sure. I found it to be, you know, quite a difficult book the first time I read it. But what I will say is it definitely changes your outlook because I'm not sure I got all of the bits and let's call it the last third of the book. The beginning was easier. And I did buy the um, by Hound and I, which I'm going to probably put some time aside over Christmas to try and work through that one. But it's impossible after reading that book to look at a column in architecture or look at a piece without starting to work out you know, what proportions are being used. So it certainly opened my eyes to something that I guess before that was just completely hidden, you know, in plain sight. It's always been there. It's not that it's not that it's changed, but my way of looking at things certainly changed um, after I'd read that book and it, it made a big impact in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I would say for myself, I mean, the second portion of it, I actually treat more as a reference, right? When it gets into the discussions of how to lay out large curves or certain patterns, I just refer to it when I'm in that situation. I think, you know, just reading the first half of the book about the approach, the way to look at and think about furniture for exactly the reason you described, right? The next time you see a high boy somewhere, like you'll you'll see it a different way. Tim, uh, you work with a lot of IT professionals and, you know, I know there's quite a few that uh, are into hand tools and will be listening to the show. But for me, there's definitely this camp of guys who will be, you know, in front of a screen all day at the office. And then after that, they'll go home and play Call of Duty all night or, you know, whatever the equivalent is. And then there's guys who don't want to see another screen at all when they get home. And, you know, I'd certainly put myself into that second camp of wanting to do something different. Do you find uh, that's true with the people that you've met? Do you find a lot of professionals turning to woodworking as sort of a completely different thing to do from their day job? Um, yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, I think that it has, it, it's similar, again, the, the, the problem solving aspect we talked about, that's, it has that appeal and the creation of things, right? I mean, a lot of people building software, like we like to make things. I mean, that's really what I've come to understand about myself. I just like to build stuff. And in my day job, I build software stuff. And in my time off, I build wooden stuff. I think certainly for me, like you compare it to spending time playing a video game, I'm happy to do that to some extent, but it has to be a social thing, right? I need to be doing it with somebody else like in the room. Then it becomes more interesting to me. But yeah, I, I, I think that for a lot of people, they just like creating things and solving problems and it gives them another way to do that, but also takes them out of their day-to-day -day work context, right? So it gives them a break from 
you know, what they spend most of their time on, which is great. Talking of creating things, you did a little bit in that presentation where you spoke about making the profile for a bookshelf, I think it was bookcase. And when you start playing with a set of, well, maybe not even a set of hollow rounds, maybe two sets, I always say three or four, but you're not going to play with three, uh, three hollows. Um, so if you're playing with a, a simple set of two matched pairs of hollow and rounds, you know, those really just seem to open up the, the doorways to all kinds of designs. And are you still doing a lot of that? Uh, you know, obviously maybe not as much for shaker pieces, but are you playing with profiles and molding and, and messing around with that? Or, or Yeah, you know? absolutely. So I, I should say, I mean, I mentioned the shaker piece, you know, the candle stand, but most of my work is, it's a little bit more decorative than shaker for sure. I like a little more ornamentation. And so that work is done with those planes. Also making uh, picture frames. I don't know. There's, I think a lot of people feel this way about hollows and rounds. There's just something magical about them. I mean, taking a square piece of stock and incrementally turning it into exactly the profile you want so that you can trim out a piece or make a frame or whatever, they're just a ball to use, right? <laughs> to see the shape, you know, to listen to the sound of it, of the shaving being taken. I'd love to hear your experience, but when I show someone my shop and all the planes are in a cabinet and I open the cabinet and almost invariably someone will say, oh, what are those? <laughs> And I have to pull out a pair to show them. And it just always, people are always kind of tickled by that idea. I think what's funny when I show that is I've had a lot of people, they are really taken by the complex molding planes. And the funny thing is I've generally bought those opportunistically, you know, so I've gone to a, a vintage tool shop and I've seen something and they're getting rid of them or they're in the corner, you know, somewhere in a small little town in the country. So, you know, I've grabbed them when I've had, but the ones that really fascinate me is I use probably four sixes and eights are probably the, the three sets I use a, a lot, but take a set of sixes and you do something with it and you look and you go, wow, this is magic. And I, I know that a lot of our woodworking is a subtractive process. You know, we take something and we take pieces away from it and we end up with, you know, wood that is furniture. But there's something very special about playing with the molding plane and having, as you say, a square piece of stock. And then it turns into this profile that really looks like it had an incredibly fancy router bit and uh, industrial production facility to make it. Something very special about them. And you know, talking of picture frames, there's definitely a lot of that in my future. My wife does watercolor. So the nice thing is, is that, you know, I can make a profile just to play. And then if she likes it, we'll keep it. If she really doesn't like it, we give it away as a present. And then, you know, people are delighted because they got this uh, handmade picture frame and handmade painting, but it's really just a way of clearing the artifacts out of the shop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Tim, um, being conscious of time, you know, one of the things I'd really be interested in is, you know, do you have uh, some favorite books or um, a favorite book or favorite books about woodworking that moved you along in your journey? And what would those be and what's special about them to you? So, um, yeah, I mentioned The Joiner and the Cabinet Maker was really what started me seriously down the hand tool path. Other books that helped me along the way, one was Robert Wearing's Essential Woodworker. Um, so that kind of fleshed out some of the things that were talked about in the joiner and the cabinet maker, you know, it kind of gave a more exhaustive coverage of the basic joints. I really liked Jim Tolpin's The New Traditional Woodworker, mostly because of its guidance on setting up a shop and help with, you know, what kind of tools going through various categories of tools and, you know, what you should get to start with and what you should maybe hold off on or sort of pick up as needed. In addition, that book has a series of projects all about building the jigs like bench hooks and a straight edge and a square and what have you um, that you're going to need to use in the shop. Beyond that, 
I really enjoy the Hayward Woodworker books from Lost Art Press, the the four volume set of um, excerpts from the Woodworker. There's a fair amount of repetition in the in the articles that are in those volumes, but they're a favorite for like you know as winter sets in. If you're going to have a book sitting next to a chair in the living room that you you picked up of an evening and like open to a random place and read some, you know, there's a lot of information in those books that I already know. But there's all sorts of things, tidbits of guidance. How are you going to cut a rabbit on a curved piece of, of rail? If you're trying to, you know, make the miter joint for a curved gooseneck coming into a straight piece on the side, like how do you lay that out? There's some material in those books that I think is you'd be hard pressed to find elsewhere. And if nothing else, they're they're fascinating. They're also a little bit dangerous. I, I had never heard of a quirk router before until I ran across it in one of those books and realized as soon as I finished that I of course needed one. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a danger going back to tool acquisition because thanks to thanks to eBay in the UK, a vintage one was on its way to me like an hour later. <laughs> I've supported uh, eBay in the UK a few times myself. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. This is a you know safe space. We're not we're not judgmental yeah. about that. So, I mean, yeah. I, I think those books are just fascinating, right? Because the handwork went on for so much longer in the UK. It's a fantastic compendium of information. It's interesting that you mentioned Waring's book. And I mean, I've been asked by a couple of listeners to do a proper review on that. And it's it's one of those that, that's coming soon. I promise everyone who's listening to this that, you know, they're probably tired of hearing that by now. But just talking about bench appliances and whatever, I've also got his book, The Solution at Hand. And I found that an incredible book to just pick up, you know, from time to time and just look at some of the um, appliances that you can use for different work holding and different purposes in the shop. I mean, he really had a great knowledge but that essential woodwork is a phenomenal book. It feels to me like the kind of book that if you were dropped on a desert island with a toolbox in that book, you know, you could really follow that in a kind of step-by-step way to get some stuff done. He's really taken the time and effort to put the details and the, the steps of the process. And when I read it, you know, even going back to it after a bit, you read it and you say, why am I doing stuff the way I'm doing it? Why is he doing it the way he's doing it? And some of it's simple, you know, some of it's just, I think he makes the point very early on where he says that, most of the errors in woodworking are because people couldn't be bothered to take the time to mop the waste, you know. And oh, a, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lesson there. I, I think of it every time I'm doing dovetails now because uh, I've cut uh, duplicate sets of pins, you know, to go together on a corner, you know, you know, two sets of tails to go together on the same corner. And, and I have to catch myself because I'm like, oh, no, I'll just do this. I've done this before. I'll just do it quickly. And I'm like, Mr. Waring says – Take your pencil and mark the waste. Yeah, or, or, <laughs> and you know, since I've been doing that, I've been a lot happier. Yeah, I, I think of cutting tails, but putting the saw on the wrong side of the line. So the tails are laid out yeah. right. They're all just one saw curf, too, too short. Not or a, thin. A, a, absolutely right, yeah. And I mean, that that's really, you know, that's one of those ones of just, if you can take little simple tidbits like that away and, you know, drill them into your head, it, you know, certainly helped me to be a, a better woodworker. Talking of books, do you have a favorite non-woodworking book that that you enjoy? Uh, yeah, it's a tough question to answer. I read um, I read a lot of mysteries actually. So I didn't know. I know you had you mentioned when we were we were setting up this uh, conversation um, that you might ask this question, and I, I was thinking in the yeah. back of my mind, I wonder if he means you know fiction or nonfiction. But outside woodworking, absolutely anything. Yeah. Most of what I yeah. read is fiction, and most of that is mysteries. I've really been loving the Rivers of London series by Ben Aronovich, which is a modern magic uh, series set in London. And not surprisingly, has has numerous great critiques of architecture. So maybe that's part of the appeal for me. 
<laughs> no, that's great. So I think to any listeners, if uh, that's your thing, there's a recommendation. I'm not familiar with the book, but uh, you've certainly got the recommendation there. And then I think to maybe just in you know closing, one last question. Um, if there was anyone in the in the woodworking world that you would particularly like to meet, you know, who would that be? Oh, that's such a tough question to answer. I I feel like there are so many people that um you know that I have learned things from. You know, Chris Schwartz is an obvious example. Uh, I would love to meet him someday. A less well-known person. There's a gentleman in in Australia, Derek Cohen, who is uh, on numerous woodworking forums. I've exchanged email with him once, but I think the work that he does is is uh, just amazing. And he's very open with sharing his experience. He does a lot of, uh, or at least he used to do a lot of tool reviews, builds a lot of his own tools. I just think he he contributes a lot to the world community of hand tool woodworkers. Yeah, I'd love to meet Shannon Rogers. I know lots of guys <laughs> and women. I'd love to meet Nancy Hiller. Had an interview with her uh, the other day and uh, absolutely lovely conversation. You know, I really, really enjoyed it. And yeah, she's absolutely, absolutely super. So Tim, I, you know, I'd like to say thanks very much for you know giving your time in terms of the show. You know, if, if someone had asked me a couple of months ago, you know, who's someone that I'd really like to meet in the woodworking world, you, your name would have been on that list. So for me, this has been you know really great to have this interview with you, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to all of us today. Yeah, absolutely, it's been my absolute pleasure. I really appreciate uh, you reaching out and offering me the opportunity. Mm-hmm. 